Thanks for listening to the GCC Sermon Podcast. We'd love to meet you for worship on Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visit georgetownchristian.org for more info. Georgetown Christian. Hey, uh, is, uh, is this thing on? Because uh, first service, I guess, we had some issues with me changing my batteries. And uh, you guys have evidence now. I'm trying to save a nickel, and maybe I shouldn't. At least not on the batteries. So we're, we're good to go. If you have brought the Word of God with you today, your Bible, if it's an app you load, then load her up. I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 2. And if you're new at opening a Bible, or if you're brand new at exploring what it means to be a Jesus follower, maybe you're just brand new here at Georgetown today, I would love to meet you in the lobby. I'm not going to, like, get all your information and show up at your house with cookies tomorrow, although if you have cookies, I will show up to your house tomorrow. Uh, But we're not going to accost you, but I would like to meet you. Uh, And I'll be in the lobby afterwards. But we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. And we are thankful to God that it is like 10 degrees warmer in here than it was first service. We were doing this the whole time. It was so absurd. So I think our heat's working a little better. Thank the Lord. So I don't know about when you were a kid, when I was a kid. Swimming's about all I could think about. I had a pool in my backyard growing up from don't know the age of whatever. And my pool looked exactly like this. Uh, no umbrella, but we literally swam in a cattle tank, which I thought was normal my entire life. I might even still tell you it's normal because you don't need like a gajillion dollar gallon whatever pool. You just you need to get wet when you're a kid. And so when I was about four, I think, mom started me in swimming lessons, which was at the city pool, and it was only five blocks from our house, so I got to swim my brains out. I loved swimming. But if you grew up around the time that I did, and I'm like 400 years old, then you probably experienced what I did, and that was this crazy rule that I, to this day, don't understand. And that was you had to wait 30 minutes after you eat before you swim. Did anybody else have this sort of crazy Nazi rule in their life? Anybody? What? 45? Full-blown communist. That is outrageous. So I, I don't know why our moms came up with these rules. I'm sure it was, you know, somehow it was good for us. But if you had those rules like I did, <clears throat> did you also have the experience of coming of age when you're, like, moved out or whatever, and you're eating and you're looking at that pool, and it finally clicks. You're like, I'm testing it out. Today's the day. I'm going to find out what happens when you eat the food and you have the audacity to dip your toe into that pool and then see what happens. Because I never knew what would happen. I could never do it myself. Maybe you did put your foot. I just jumped in. And I'm like, and then nothing happened. So evidently nothing is what happens. Um, But for some reason, as a kid, I would just like have that basically the whole bologna sandwich stuffed in my mouth, and then I'm trying to get into the pool while I'm still chewing and not even swallowed, and that may have had something to do with the rule. I don't know. But I was always in a rush, and I I would admit to you today that I'm still in a pretty big rush. Um, My junior year of high school and Andrea's junior year of high school, we had this English teacher 
who had, she, she had this reputation that preceded her by two years. If the teacher's bad enough that she's a junior year teacher and you know about her your freshman year, she's bad. And her reputation kind of hinged on two things. And one thing was, number one, you're going to write your brains out. You're going to write a minimum of a three-page paper every single week. That's 30 weeks of school. I was certain I would die of typing, if not getting in a pool with food in my stomach after before 30 minutes. So we knew, number one, we were going to type our brains out. Minimum of three pages. Response to poetry, research, blah, blah, blah. And the second thing was she was never going to grade on a curve. So if you loved your GPA like you loved your puppy, you were going to have issues when you got to her class. But I love this about her. She was a teacher that challenged many of us to begin using an active voice and to, instead of using lazy adverbs, thank you, my wife told me this morning, I said verbs, I'm sorry, it's adverbs, words like very fast. Instead of that, she challenged us and pushed us to consider, what if you use something uh, like a metaphor or a better verb, but a metaphor like um, faster than uh, a toddler picking up a Lego off the floor and putting it in their mouth. Like that. She really wanted us to be creative in our writing. But this teacher challenged me even more on my writing. She challenged me even more to stop and smell the flowers. Lady, I don't care about flowers. I want my GPA to be better than Andrea's, okay? You're making this really difficult. And so she wanted me personally to slow down, to stop, and to smell the flowers. So has anybody ever told you, and you don't have to raise your hands, and spouse is easy with elbows, but has anyone ever told you, you are so busy, I just don't know how you get it all done? Maybe you remember hearing that. And maybe if you're anything like me, you were like, yeah, I get it all done. And, and you never even, like, for one second, stop to think what they're saying is not a compliment. That would be me in, in all of those cases. I'm so proud of how rushed and packed and efficient, which is really sort of a figment of my own imagination, that I don't realize that sometimes that's not a compliment when someone says, I sure don't know how you get it all done. So maybe you are something like that, and maybe you are an above-average bear who has just annihilated all your goals. You've written them uh, in your journal and on your mirror and on the visor of your car and on the fridge, and if you sit still long enough, you write it on your kids, and, like, it's everywhere, and you're the goal annihilator, and you've accomplished more in the last 21 days than anybody's going to accomplish, like, all of the rest of 2024 because you are just a goal ninja. And if that sounds a little bit like you, I wonder if in the back of your head, maybe the back burner of your heart, there's another voice that says, you skipped another whole week with your family. Uh, I know this voice really well. You haven't been to church in a month because you're working on just one more project. I really know this voice well. Uh, it might also say something like, you've been saying just one more project since 2006 or 1996. 
or 2016, and for whatever it is, I think you and I, those of you that can identify with that, we can say that we probably struggle to rest. We probably struggle to just stop. And I want to admit that I've been struggling with rest, and I knew that I would have to tell you guys this sometime, but I've been struggling with rest, and I, I mean this not in a I need sympathy way. I mean this in a, it's a picture of the Christian life as we grow together into the image and likeness of Jesus, as, as you and I try to become more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we necessarily have to take steps that look like failure because we have to fail our way forward. And those, each one of those steps is the faith that He can transform our hearts and lives. We have to participate in that, which means sometimes we have to fail at whatever it is that we're trying to grow in. But maybe some of you are like, you know, I'm kind of proud of the fact that I worked a 70-hour week. I can, I can raise my hand to that. I can say I'm proud of it. And I think that means we're missing something, particularly when we justify it. Like I might say, well, I'm doing it for the Lord. What does that do to a family? So you guys can consider that this morning. Maybe write it in the margin of your Bible. We're starting in Genesis chapter 2. Um, In 2019 and 20, I made a concerted effort to rest one day a week, and that definition was refined over time, and I was very not perfect. But I read Eugene Peterson, I read two books, Eugene Peterson's A Pastor's Memoir. And it was a beautiful picture of what this man who is now recognized as a very great pastor. uh, You guys ever heard of the message? Yeah, he led that translation. The guy never pastored a megachurch. He was just a faithful pastor to the flock that God gave him, like Roy McLean was here, like Robin Tyler was here, and he never made a huge deal about any of his pastoral life. I've never felt so seen. I loved that book. I felt like he knew me, and he rested one day a week. And his purpose was to remind himself, this is God's church, not mine. Well, you might not be surprised to hear that when I read that book, I rested so that I could come back and work more, and I could be a better pastor, which is really missing the point. But we're not, we're not dwelling on failure. We're talking about how to grow in faith. So I read another book. This was John Mark Coomer's uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Has anybody read that book or listened to it? So I'm listening to that book, and it's on the way to uh, <clears throat> vacation. And I'm listening to this book where I'm on a vacation, and it's about rest, and it's three quarters of the way through the book when I realize I'm listening at 2x speed. The ruthless elimination of hurry at 2x. If you know me, we've probably discussed how I love podcasts and audiobooks, and if you listen at 3x for five minutes, you can back off to 2x and it'll sound normal. Right? We're developing a pattern, aren't we? Yeah, you can understand something about the struggle. So I, I, want, I want you to know this, that it is in a way about not specifically how dumb I am or how miserable of a failure I am, but how much we as Christians can grow as we fail toward Jesus, toward trusting that he is who he says he is. Uh, Dallas Willard said this. He said, hurry is the greatest enemy of spiritual life in our day. 
So if we want 2024, for 2024 to produce in us personally, in us corporately, something new, something that wasn't there before, we decided in the very first week that we need to do something different. And so many of us have set resolutions and goals, and we decided maybe it would be important to see what God's Word says about this. We considered how the Israelites needed to first, the theme of the whole series, first consider carefully their ways. And we decided we needed to consider carefully our ways. Last week we decided that first we need to give God our first fruits. And if your financial life is a mess, begin first by giving God your first fruits. Today we are discovering that we give the Lord the first day of the week. We give the Lord the first day of the week. But there's this question that maybe, maybe is itching for you. And that is, wait a second, we're going to start in Genesis. How is it that we're giving the first day? Because what is it we see in Genesis here? We see in Genesis chapter 2, that God rested on what day? I'll read it to you. Uh, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he'd done. So God established in the creation order, rest on the seventh day. How did we arrive at the first day? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. It's really important to recognize things God established in the creation order. It's the very beginning. Don't we do things that are important right at the very beginning? We do those at the, the first, the outset. So in the creation order, we also see that God established maybe one of the most dramatic things that we'll ever experience as a, a creation of his, and that is he established the God-human relationship. No other religion has this, just Christianity. He established the God-human relationship. He established the human-human relationship of covenantal marriage between a man and a woman. And that continues to this day. And he gave that man and that woman some responsibilities. He said, go forth and multiply. He said to rule the earth and subdue it. So we're, we're invited then into this relationship with God where we're, we're a co-creator. We won't ever create or destroy matter, but we'll create kind of like he does. And we'll rule over the earth like he does. Similarly, not in the same way. This creation order thing is a really big deal, and God established in that order his rest on the seventh day. That Hebrew word is Shabbat. You guys want to say a Hebrew word with me? Let's say it together. Shabbat. It just means to stop working. If you've ever worked a clock punching job, if you ever clocked in and clocked out, you punch that clock, you put your time card in, it punches it, and hopefully it has the right time on it. And at the end of your shift, you're going to go to that thing, and you're going to punch the clock, and you're going to Shabbat. You're just stop. It just means to stop work. Now, we're tracing the Sabbath. So I'm moving on into Exodus here. And it appears that Abraham, Abraham has obeyed the Sabbath. This is before Sabbath exists insofar as the Ten Commandments are concerned. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because, here's our evidence, Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commands, my statutes, my laws. So we know Abraham obeyed the Sabbath. We don't have a direct mention, however, of Isaac or Jacob or Joseph. And we do know then 
that the Hebrew people are enslaved by Pharaoh. Remember they go down to get the food from Brother Joseph? It's great because they get the food initially, and then after a while it's not so great because Pharaoh enslaves all of the Hebrew people. So now they don't have food, they don't have freedom, they don't have any kind of rest. And a well-respected commentator said this about the Sabbath. Sabbath is an act of rebellion against Pharaoh's empire. Sabbath is an act of rebellion against Pharaoh's empire. Now think about Pharaoh's empire metaphorically with me and just finish this, this, the second part of the sentence. Sabbath is an act of rebellion, what? Against Pharaoh's empire. Now you're thinking, we don't live under Pharaoh. This guy's off his rocker. But in America, we call it grinding. In America, we call it hustling. In fact, we have hashtags that maybe you post on your break at your second job. It says, hashtag respect the grind. Hashtag respect the hustle. Isn't it interesting that some of our workplaces have this culture that, that elevates the idea of being a team player? And you think, when your boss says, hey, can you stay after? And you say, uh, actually, you know, my wife's out of town. i got to pick the kids up. You go and pick the kids up, and you come back to work uh, the next day, and you think everything's fine until evaluations come around, and all your evaluation is written, not a team player. And you find out. It wasn't voluntary. He was voluntelling you that you were going to stay after work, and you didn't do it. But it's just normal. Because we're American, you should respect the grind. You should respect the hustle. Isn't it interesting that in America, we're willingly submitting ourselves to slavery, to work seven days a week, like it's great, like it's brilliant, like we're something special when we do it. But I believe that, that God gave us a Sabbath so that we could reject the hold that things have on us. It, it allows us to reject the hold that things have on us. So continue tracing the Sabbath with me. They're enslaved by Pharaoh. God rescues the Israelites. He brings them out. Exodus 14, you don't need to read it. I'm just summarizing where we are. He brings them through the Red Sea, miraculously splitting the waters. They crash back in on Pharaoh and his army. Moses and Miriam sing a song in 15. The Israelites are following them. Life is amazing. But for three days, they don't have food or water. At the end of the third day, they find water. That brings us to chapter 16. My question, what does the Lord immediately lead Israel back to? The waters of the Red Sea crashing on Pharaoh's army. It's been three days, maybe four. 16.23, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they could gather two days on Monday, but on Tuesday what they gathered for the next day would be rotten until it was Saturday and then it would be fine. And God so established this to ingrain back into his people that on six days you work and on the seventh you rest. The creation order. And at Mount Sinai he codifies it. It becomes part of the ten. It's the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, 
if you're a parent or you're a driver, you understand a rule is not a rule without a punishment. If the speed limit on State Road 64 was 55 miles an hour, but we had no police, how many of you would drive 55 miles an hour when you're right in front of the church? You don't have to raise your hands. I know it's not true. You would not. If you're anything like a normal human, by the time you're at the church going that direction, you'd be going like 78 billion miles an hour because there's no cops. Because a rule without, like, a rule without a punishment, it's not a rule. So these Israelites developed a, a punishment for this rule. It's given to them by God, and that is that the, the community of believers comes together to stone those who break the Sabbath law. If you're working on the Sabbath, you're stoned. Well, Israel really isn't into doing anything that God has said. So jump hundreds of years forward with me, and we have Ezekiel saying, a prophet of God, he sent saying, and I give them my Sabbath days of rest as a sign between them and between me. It was to remind them that I am the Lord who had set them apart to be holy. Now, following the giving of the Ten Commandments, Israel did not a whole lot of obeying, really not much of any. And in fact, that's still going on now. They're just not into obeying. In fact, they're chasing idols and women and riches and power and glory and self-worth. Maybe you could say they're grinding and hustling. Israel wanted nothing to do with God or his command. So let's follow this on into the New Testament. I'm in Luke chapter 4, but I'm going to Matthew chapter 12, and I want to invite you to go to Matthew chapter 12. And if you're a note taker, I want you to begin writing in the margin next to Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, through verse 9. Uh, We're going to go through a series of seven stops along the way of tracing this through the New Testament. How does a Sabbath work out? Because here we are on the first day of the week. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, Luke's a physician, as mentioned in Scripture. He's really attentive to detail in his writing. He says... When he came, he's referring to Jesus, to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went, Georgetown, what are these words in your Bible? With with mine, it says, as usual. Maybe you have, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up and read the scriptures. So right there we see Jesus uh, keeping the Sabbath day holy, reading the scriptures, meeting with the believers. All right, now we're in Matthew chapter 12. And if you just keep your finger there, you might want to be writing down some of these stops that we make through the New Testament. I want to try to go chronologically. We'll do our best. But it's an estimate at best. So Matthew chapter 12, I'm starting in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat, drive through fields, tasting nommers. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to them, and this is really difficult for them to hear because he's asking, did you read the thing, the word, the Torah? Did you read that? Because that's what you're accusing me of not knowing. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him and how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, or for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Do you guys think he might be referring to himself? Okay, something greater than the temple is here. But if you're a slow Pharisee, he's going to clarify it all. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And here he's just making it crystal clear for them. 
for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now to Hebrew ears who are celebrating the seventh day, they're keeping it holy, they're setting it apart. Rest unto the Lord. Remember, He is where everything comes from. No amount of our effort, it is from Him. When, when we're on the seventh day, a Hebrew ear is hearing things established in the creation order, and who is it who comes along and says that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. But this rabbi Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, a Hebrew would literally hear someone saying, I'm God. And the same thing that happened in the chapter 4, he's forgiving sin, which is only a role reserved for who? God. And then he heals on the Sabbath, and who would be reserved for that kind of a role? God. So Matthew makes clear here, Jesus makes clear, he believes he is God. But a rule is not a rule without a punishment. So what was the punishment? Pop quiz, Georgetown. What was the punishment if you broke the Sabbath? Death by stoning. Holy smokes, this is huge. Jesus knows better. These Pharisees are telling him how wrong he is. In fact, these Israelites, um, yeah, Jews at this time, were so serious, uh, just as 160 years before Jesus is encountering these Pharisees, maybe 190-ish, there's a thing called the Maccabean Revolts. These, these guys are all following this teacher named Matthias. And wouldn't you know it, they're so strictly observing the Sabbath that they get attacked regularly on the Sabbath and they, go, they all get slaughtered because they won't defend themselves. Matthias has to reinterpret the Sabbath in order for them to defend themselves. So lots of them die until they reinterpret it to where they can defend themselves. It's a very serious, in fact, a capital offense to break the Sabbath. So what we've decided constitutes work, whatever that is, is a violation that deserves death. Enter the scribes, the Pharisees. You guys know Star Wars music, the Imperial March? Bum, 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 bum. Okay, that's the Pharisees. Here they come with their rules. They have so many rules. They have three books. And these three books, can, they, they, they uh, contain 39 different descriptions of what work looks like. And for what God intended to be uh, for man, you can see in Mark chapter 2, we'll get to in a second, they have in fact turned it on its head and they've piled all of these extra rules on top of God's people. They've piled them all on top of the people who are trying to obey a law and Jesus opposed that. All of these extra rules, Jesus opposes that. Here's how I'm arriving here. That I think what it would be an interpretive key. The way Matthew wrote his gospel. So check with me on Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what, Georgetown? Rest! Yes, this is what we need. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what, Georgetown? Rest, yes, for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus opposed these 39 categories of work that only became burdensome to the people. They were not a blessing. He opposes scribal garbage traditions that all surrounded the Sabbath. Don't believe me, read verse 9. Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. And he went on from there and entered their what, Georgetown? 
synagogue because he's observing the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2, he says it a different way than Matthew says it. I'd like to say Jesus just resets the Sabbath because he says it's a rest for man. Look what he says, Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So it's, it's clear to me, is it clear to you that Jesus observes the Sabbath? He gathers with the believers. He reads the scriptures. He shows up in the synagogue. So we're tracing the Sabbath from the old to the new, and now we watch it undergo a transformation that I think might just be related, I think you'll conclude the same, to this one event that seems to stand at the center of all of Scripture and at the center of time itself, at the center of the calendar, at the center of the Christian faith, and that is the cross, that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul sometimes even boils it down to the gospel. It is more than that, but Paul will sometimes say it is that, and then it includes this whole host of changes, way more than just forgiving sin, but it includes this whole host of changes, and I think it it is centered on that, and let's examine seven stops to the New Testament to see if maybe this is where the shift happens. Maybe this is why we're here on a Sunday instead of a Saturday, Georgetown. Maybe this is why believers, through all of recorded history, have been gathering on the first day of the week. So if you've still got your Bibles in Matthew chapter 12, I want you to just, on the margin there, if you're okay with writing in your Bibles, and I would encourage you to get okay, and if you're not okay, please see me. I want to help you get okay, because that thing is inspired and it's authoritative, but it is for you to have an increasingly clear image of what God has for, for us to do. So while it is living and active, and it is holy and inspired, it is also a tool. So please, by Matthew chapter 12, begin writing. These seven stops are going to make the New Testament. The first one is John chapter 20, verse number one. And I'm going to try to do this in what appears to be chronological fashion, and some of them are muddied around 30 to 60 AD. So John chapter 20 to verse one. Now, uh, what you're going to see here in verse one and verse 19 in chapter 20 of John is that the apostles were meeting on the day that commemorates Jesus' victorious resurrection from the dead. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away. Now, I'm going to verse 19. This is our first stop. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. This is on the first day, Jesus' resurrection. We want to seek first the kingdom of heaven. We want to seek first his righteousness. We want all of our other goals in life to flow from those. And so we consider our ways carefully first. We give our first fruits, and we meet on the first day of the week, as I believe we'll see the church do. Now we're in Acts chapter 20. This is verse 7. Just write that under your John chapter 20, verse 19, if you're still taking notes there in Matthew 12. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 7. It's somewhere between 30 AD and 60 AD. And it's on the, oh my gosh, Georgetown, what does it say? On the, say it with me, 
first day of the week. Okay, we were gathered together to break bread or to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's stop number two, Acts 20, verse 7. Stop number three, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse number two. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside that you've decided that you're going to give as he may prosper, so there'll be no collecting when I come. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. It's probably still closer to, I'm sorry, uh, 55 to 60 AD-ish. So we're just tracing this development through time in the birth of the church after the event of the cross. So this is around 55, 60. Paul writing uh, to the, Corinth, the church at Corinth, he says, on the first day of the, every week, he's assumed they're already meeting on the first day of the week. So it's by mid-first century <clears throat> that we have the testimony of Scripture. And if you are big into research, go check out what history says. And we're just going to cover Scripture today. But you get on your little Google machine and figure out what history said about Christians and when they celebrated uh, and gathered for worship. So it's around this time uh, we've got a bit of a crisis developing. Paul would have said it's a massive crisis. It's 55 to 65-ish AD. And this crisis is that there are these uh, formerly Jewish believers. And these formerly Jewish believers are creeping into these churches, particularly in Colossae and in Galatia, and they are leading Christians astray. They are, they're mucking up everything that's happening as God church it continues to grow. His, his body is becoming healthy. And they're bringing in something that just starts to destroy the church from the inside. And they're called Judaizers. They began teaching that Christians should get circumcised. I'm out. They began teaching that Christians should follow feast days. They began teaching that if they could follow all these Jewish laws, that they would be more righteous somehow. And that they could be really, really, really saved. A man was uh, driving all night, and he was desperate for rest. He pulls his car over to the side of the road. It's sort of an extra, extra wide shoulder, and he begins to take a nap. The sun is just coming up, and he hears on his door, Hey, mister. Guy's running in place. Can you tell me what time it is? He rolls the windows down. Yeah, it's five. Rolls the window back up, goes back to sleep. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? It's another runner. He's running in place. Hey man, you tell me what time it is? Rolls the window down. It's like 5.45, dude. It's time for you to get a watch. Rolls the window back up. Before he goes back to sleep, though, big brain, he writes on a piece of paper he's got with him. I don't know what time it is. Puts it on his windshield. Wouldn't you know it, coming the other direction, He's furious. He's like, what on earth? Rolls his window down. What do you want, man? He's like, hey, dude, I just want to let you know it's 630. And the guy just runs off. You and I need rest. We need rest. And so although we're seeing this transformation happen, and we're going to see more than a transformation, we cannot deny the fact that we do need rest. Paul opposes 
these Judaizers who are in Colossae in Galatia now, and this is our fourth stop. But Paul opposes them because they're trying to add to or improve upon the work of Christ on the cross. There's no room for improvement there. And Paul writes thusly, chapter 2 of Colossians. If you're still writing in the margin by Matthew chapter 12, this is Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. He canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating. Now follow very closely, Georgetown. Certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or, Georgetown, say it with me, Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality to come. And Christ himself is that reality, which is confirmed by Hebrews 4. I'm not even going to try to explain all of that. You should definitely get into Kurt's class, or Mark's class, or Doug's class, or Rick's class, or Aaron's class, and talk about the book of Hebrews, because that author understands that Jesus Christ is the reality of the rest that we seek to enter, and we're halfway there, and we're not there, and we're on the way there, and we're going to be there, and we have to keep striving to be there. So that's why I'm not going to talk about it. But let's just do the shadow thing real quick, because I can understand this. It was a shadow of the reality to come, which is Jesus Christ. So we've got the stand... And you maybe can't see it, but we've got this shadow here on the floor. So imagine now the insanity of me, pretend it's a loved one, and I'm going <clears> to <throat> hug him. Can you hug a shadow? You can't hug a shadow. And Paul says these rules are shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Paul's point, the basis for our freedom is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The basis for our freedom is the person and work of Jesus Christ. On the cross, he canceled the law. He canceled the debt. As believers, we are under grace. We are not under the rule of law. Romans chapter 6, or like the whole book of Romans, but let's just read Romans chapter 6, verse 14. This is stop number 5. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are, say this with me, Georgetown, you are not under law, but under grace. So the Gentile believers that were in Colossae and Galatia, they initially thought as new believers, like, yeah, we're saved because of Jesus because we place our faith in his ability to conquer sin and Satan and death and to take the punishment that we deserved and give to us mercy, give to us his righteousness that we don't ever deserve, but by the love of God and the miracle of the resurrection, we now look like Jesus before God. Thanks be to God, because we could never do that ourselves. Now imagine someone coming in and saying, guys, I got to tell you, you can improve on what Jesus did. All you got to do is, and then come up with all this legal garbage. How absurd does that sound? That is exactly what Paul was railing against in Galatians and Colossians. So Warren Wiersbe is a, he's passed, but 
He was a pastor and a commentator, and I want to read just a brief segment of what he says about this. The person who judges a believer, because that believer is not living under Jewish laws, is actually judging Jesus. Uh, here, here. He is saying that Christ did not finish the work of salvation on the cross and, and that we must add something to it. This, you can, we can see how absurd this is now. He's also saying that Jesus Christ is not sufficient for all of the needs, the spiritual needs of a Christian. And the false teachers, they were claiming you could improve upon it, that you could add to it, you could somehow become more righteous by these special observances. You can see why that's trash, why that's complete garbage, because it was bondage masquerading as extra spiritual people. Uh, we're a non-denominational church. We're part of what is known as the restoration movement. So there's there's nowhere that we send our money other than missionaries who are sharing the gospel. We send it there. But there's no denominational oversight because we seek to restore the New Testament ideal, the primitive church, just what we see in the New Testament. And so as a result, there were, there were these guys. One of them was named Alexander Campbell, and he really liked to call Bible things by Bible names. So that's a phrase we have. We try to call Bible things by Bible names. And so I believe it is wrong to call Sunday a Christian Sabbath because you're not going to find it in Scripture. Do you need rest? Yes. But Jesus is now our Sabbath, and I don't see so far anywhere that we're going to call Sunday a Christian Sabbath. In fact, what we do see is that it is called, this is stop number six, it is called the Lord's Day. This is Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. This is John, and he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So let me just wrap this up in a little bow. We have traced the development of Sabbath from the Old Testament through the New. We've tried to do it mostly chronologically, and we've seen that Jesus kept the Sabbath. We've seen that Jesus fulfilled the law, and we've seen that observing a Sabbath-like rest on the Lord's day even, cannot in any way improve or add to our salvation or make us appear more righteous before God. There is no way to say that more clearly, my friends. If you're a believer in Jesus, it is his work that has made you righteous. And there is no amount of rule keeping. And the thought that there is is subversive to the reality that is Jesus resurrected from the dead, entered the perfect tabernacle in heaven on our behalf. It sounds silly now when we compare it to that, doesn't it? It sounds absurd because it is. Now, I said that there were seven, and for those of you that just would love to hear from maybe a church like not Colossae and not Galatia, who weren't struggling with Judaizers, what does Paul really think? Well, lucky us, he wrote that down in Romans chapter 14. So this is stop number seven. One person esteems one day as better than another. While another esteems all days alike, each one 
should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. He'd just finished teaching about meat sacrifice to idols, and there's a big controversy about that. And he is explaining that you, you eat in honor of the Lord, or you abstain in honor of the Lord, and you give thanks to God. And either way you're choosing to do it, you, you do it, because you're fully convinced in your own mind. So I, I mentioned restoration movement churches. We are marked by this solution exactly. And we kind of formalized it in this little phrase. We believe in essentials, unity, and in non-essentials, liberty. So this Sabbath thing is very clear in Scripture, but if you personally are convinced that you personally need to observe some kind of a rest, understanding that Jesus is the perfect rest, and that you cannot add to your salvation, you cannot improve your righteousness, but out of obedience you want to rest and trust that he has provided what you need, then you have liberty. But insofar as you want to come to me or to an elder and to say that we have to follow the Sabbath, we're going to say, you need another church. Because you can find churches who are what's called Sabbatarian. And you know what? Paul says that's fine. But we say that that's liberty. And I understand that if in your heart you're so convinced that you believe your church leadership needs to be in agreement with this specific issue. I do want to give you one warning, though. If you go in search of that church and you find it, they will arrest you for mowing your lawn on Sunday. And you will go to jail for getting groceries on Sunday. Just you've been warned. But none of those, uh, those kinds of activities can add to our salvation or increase our righteousness because it is by faith alone in Christ alone that we're considered righteous. So we want to place, first and foremost, a careful consideration of our ways. First and foremost, we want to give God the first fruits. First and foremost, we want to celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. We want to preach the word. We want to praise his name. We want to gather offerings on the first day of the week. Understanding that it is a response to a complete work by Jesus Christ. Moms have all kinds of rules. And as kids, rarely do we understand why there are any of these rules. We grow up, and as adults, we decide that some of those rules are silly, and we stop living by them. Uh, we, we wonder if maybe those rules were because mom or dad just needed a break from a nagging kid, and we may never know. <clears throat> but moms and dads have their rules for their reasons. The Lord instituted a Sabbath rest that he himself observed first as a benefit for himself and for his people. Jesus then followed that example in his ministry. So could I argue that we have to then observe it just like Jesus did? I could, but then what would I be? like one of those people in Colossae or in Galatia, I would be a Judaizer. I would be failing to recognize that there is nothing we can add 
to the finished work of Christ on the cross. You can respond in faith however you choose, but in Georgetown Christian, in essentials, which is our faith in Christ alone, we will have unity. And if you live the Lord's Day unto Him in a way that looks Sabbatarian, you have liberty. It appears that somewhere in those churches between 55 and 65, those Judaizers came in and made a mess. And Paul would not stand for it. And I believe that faithful churches today still do not stand for it. And it is not because we don't need rest. But it is because Christ's work is finished. And we place our faith in Him alone. This year, we're endeavoring to become more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That re means responding to Him as the Spirit leads. You may have been convicted somewhere at the beginning of this year to place yourself under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You may have recognized by your reading of Scripture, listening to the preaching of the Word of God, that you live a life that is wrought through with sin. That's all of us. Welcome to the club. But we have trusted that Jesus' work has given us righteousness that is not ours. If you have not trusted that work, it's not going to happen when you walk out the door. You have to make that decision today. Maybe you've come to make that decision. Join me in front. If you have realized that somewhere in your Christian life, you've gone a little bit off track. Maybe you started the rule-keeping thing as a way that you can show God you're really worthy. He's already decided you're worthy. You're so worthy, in fact, he gave his son who conquered death and sin and Satan, and now you have a new life that is lived by the Holy Spirit. He's put him in your heart. And he's prompting you this morning to take whatever that next step is to increase your likeness to the image of his son, Jesus. We call that next steps. If you have a next step to take, we'd love to talk to you in the lobby. If you're exploring what it looks like to become a more mature Christian, we'd love to talk to you in the lobby. Would you pray with me? Our Father God, we're so grateful for your word. We trust that it has led us to the truth. That because of your great love for us, you've given us your son Jesus. You've given us this church to carry out your mission to spread your love and forgiveness to a world that doesn't know there's a king who's already conquered all that we deal with and that there's hope and peace available beyond anything we could ever experience apart from you father by your spirit this morning would you embolden us to live lives that seek first the kingdom and your righteousness we pray this in jesus name and all God's people said,